This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Stillbirth Foundation Australia and Community Care Kitchen. The content shared in this podcast represents the views of the Still Nest and our guests and may not specifically reflect the views of these organisations. Please seek professional medical advice for any clinical circumstances that may arise. Welcome to the Stillness Podcast, a place of solace for bereaved parents and their communities. I'm Dr. Fatima El Assad, a researcher and a bereaved parent. Losing a child can make you question everything your identity, your faith, and your place in the world. On this show, we will explore the complexities of child loss particularly within culturally and linguistically diverse communities. I'd like to hold space for bereaved parents to be seen, heard and understood. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Peace and God's mercy and blessings be upon you. As with all our episodes, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the Eora Nation and their ongoing custodianship. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. In today's episode, we will be getting to know the stories of two women who have formed a very strong friendship grounded in their common experience of bereavement. If you're triggered by our conversation, I have linked resources in the show notes for you. We are discussing difficult experiences often unheard, so please take the time to check in with yourself and get the help you need. I met these two angel mums at a recent in-person event earlier this year, A Slice of Heaven, the first of its kind in our community and organised through Community Care Kitchen at the Culinary School in Punchbowl in southwestern Sydney. Welcome to the Still Nest, Ibru and Naveen. Could you kindly introduce yourselves? Thank you for having us on board um, tonight, Fatima. Uh, my name's Ibru. I am 38 years old, I think. I've lost count. Um, uh, my background, my parents are Turkish. Um, I'm married to an Egyptian. We've been together now for 15 plus years. Um, we have three beautiful children, um, Dahlia, who's five, uh, Aaliyah, who would have been four, and we've got our little Zaza, Zara, um, and she is almost one. Um, I am currently a stay-at-home mum. I do have some involvement in a charity organisation, which you mentioned where we met, um, Community Care Kitchen. Um, my professional background, I used to be a project manager. I guess I still do project manage quite a bit at home. Uh, Ten years experience, used to work for Optus in the telecommunications industry. Um, and obviously, you know, after I had my first, I decided that I'd be a stay-at-home mum. One of the best jobs in the world. April. So Naveen, you are also here with us tonight and I thought maybe you could also start with a bit of background as to who you are. Thank you so much for having us today, Fatima. Um, so my name's Naveen. I'm Pakistani born and brought up. 
both my parents are Pakistani, my husband's Pakistani. Um, we've been in Australia for the last, uh, I want to say, 11 years. So we came to study, fell in love with the country and stayed on. And we were lucky enough to have um, our daughter here as well. So Sophia was born in 2019 um, and she would have been three um, this year, three and a half. I have worked on and off in everything ranging from retail to customer service. Uh, I'm currently working uh, full-time and also involved with Community Care Kitchen. So the event that we ran was um, Ibro and myself. And personally, I'm a bit of a foodie, so more liking to eat than cooking. And which is why one of the reasons why Ebs and I are that close, because we can munch through a good platter. I cook, she eats. Yeah, it, it's a great relationship. <laughs> I, I was going to ask where, what kind of binds this relationship. It's so good to hear. <laughs> well, food has probably become a secondary element. Um, yeah, definitely. As you speak to us over the next couple of conversations that you have with us, you'll see that it's just a little bit deeper than just the food. You know, Naveen, it's um, <laughs> very true that food can actually bring people together, but I know that both of you have, you know, formed a very fascinating and deep and strong relationship over, unfortunately, your shared experience of losing your daughters. Ibru, if you don't mind, do you want to just walk us through a little bit of background as to Aliyah's story for us today? Yeah. So obviously I've had, um, I, I did have, I mean, I've got a child, I've got a five-year-old. She was IVF. Uh, we had eight years of infertility, um, loads of, you know, um, fertility treatments and acupuncture and hormone therapy and you name it, we've done it. Um, took us about eight years. We ended up moving overseas to Turkey for a gap year. We sold everything here and we thought, you know what, we've, we're going overseas and we're going to just enjoy life and see where it takes us. So... Uh, we packed up and we moved and we thought we'd start IVF or our IVF journey whilst we were in Turkey. The statistics high were over there were much higher than what they were what they were here. Sorry. Prior to this, I had had three miscarriages as well. Um, once we arrived in Turkey, we did a couple of rounds. They didn't work. Eventually, fell pregnant to Dadia. Um, just a textbook. Pregnancy, absolutely perfect. She was born. She's beautiful. She's still beautiful. Very sassy. Um, about three and a half months after I had Dahlia, I spontaneously fell pregnant, which was not expected, obviously. Um, again, pregnancy was fine up until about 26 weeks. Um, at 26 weeks, uh, we had gone overseas for a little getaway with the family, like a little baby, baby moon type thing came back and I thought there's something wrong with this pregnancy there's um I haven't really felt any movement and I had um I had very little movement with Dahlia um wasn't expecting much with the second one but um at 26 weeks I thought you know what there's something wrong I just had this little I don't know just an itch that I had to that I had to you know scratch and I went to the hospital and I said listen guys I'm a bit concerned I know um, I'm busy and whatnot, but this child's not moving. So they sent me in for an ultrasound and they said, no, no, the baby's fine. Um, I said, no, nah, 
there's something wrong. So they sent me to a senior sonographer and the senior sonographer said, yeah, um, I have to call my senior. Uh, there seems to be a problem. I, we think your baby's floppy. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And she said, oh, well, we'll, we'll speak to you in a moment. So they came back, they assessed the situation. Back forth, within, say, about three or four days, we knew that there was something wrong um, with our baby. She said that the baby um, unfortunately had uh, arthrogryposis, um, which is a rare genetic disorder. Um, so we started getting used to the idea that our baby would be born with a disability. Um, but as time progressed, I was starting to build up a lot of amniotic fluid. So with more ultrasounds, they realised that my baby wasn't swallowing, wasn't practising to breathe, and all those types of milestones that you would normally hit through your pregnancy at this stage. And uh, they said, look, we don't think this pregnancy is going too well. We really don't think the, the baby is going to make it beyond birth, uh, we highly recommend that you consider terminating this pregnancy. At this point, I was probably about 32 weeks. So there was absolutely no way. I mean, even if it was earlier on, for a person who's, you know, spent eight years of their life trying to conceive and then subhanAllah, you know, as a miracle, you've been blessed with this life that you weren't expecting, there was no way that we would even consider it. Um, so we said, no, we're, we're pushing through. We're pushing through with this pregnancy. Whatever it brings, it's a blessing from Allah and we will, you know, see what happens basically. So my waters broke at about 38, 39 weeks, I think I was. Went to hospital within two hours. I was eight centimetres. Everything was going well. Suddenly her heart rate um, started dropping. So we were rushed into an emergency caesarean. I lost a lot of blood during birth I was in and out um the entire thing is just a blur to me um all I remember was that she was born I looked to my left my husband was there I woke up and I was being wheeled down a corridor uh and I saw my father and he was crying in the corridor you know with everything that was going on and I remember asking dad I said is, is she alive and dad said yes she's made it she's fine um, they've just taken us straight up to, to NICU. NICU, or N-I-C-U, stands for Neonatal Intensive Care Unit. So they've wheeled me away and uh, my husband's with our baby girl who we named Aaliyah after his auntie. So Aaliyah was in NICU. Um, I, you know, came off the drugs and they wheeled me up to meet her and she was absolutely beautiful, um, very, very ill. Uh, shortly after they told me or they gave me a list of things that were wrong with her. Um, initially, the diagnosis of arthrogryposis kind of got thrown out the door. Um, they said, look, you know, she's very ill. She's got brittle bones, possibly brittle, brittle bone syndrome. Um, she had underdeveloped lungs. She had to be ventilated. Um I mean, as you can imagine, it's a complete shock to you. You've just gone to your baby who's full term. Uh, she's completely covered up in uh, cables and machinery and, you know, just the echoing of those the, the beeping sound. I can still hear it today. Um, so, yeah, the brittle bones, underdeveloped lungs, no muscle mass at all, um, 
possibly blind, possibly deaf, possibly had some neurological issue with her brain. Um, they said that she was by far the sickest baby that NICU had seen in a decade. And they didn't know what to call it. They didn't know what it was. They were all baffled by it. They poked and prodded her. They took blood. They took skin samples. And after everything, they just said, we've got, we've got nothing for you. We don't know what this is. But I knew what it was. She was an angel. She was sent. I guess she was sent for me to meet. Excuse me. I've got a photo sitting here on my desk. So as I'm talking about her, I can see her staring back at me. Did you feel that she was an angel in that moment? I did. I did. She was a complete, she was a, she was a blessing. She had, I mean, I guess all odds, right? They said she's not going to make it beyond the birthing suite. My baby survived for 32 days. She was a full-term baby who survived for 32 days. Whilst they were pulling her out of my womb, they broke both her arms because her bones were so brittle. Now, I guess, you know, she was very sick. And I know, um, I'm just sorry, I'm just lost for words. I think we all are, Ibru. What you describe is such an intense time and an intense experience for anyone. Yeah, it was, it was a very difficult time. I mean, you're hormonal, right? You've just given birth. You've got baby blues. Um, you're, you've got a very sick child who they can't do anything for apart from keep comfortable. They're giving you absolutely no, no sign of hope. Um, so it's just a waiting game at this point. Um, you know, two weeks into it, she's had a couple of um, saturation drops where we nearly lost her. She was, she was sick. Um, she wasn't getting any worse. She wasn't getting any better. We had no hope. The doctors had basically said to us, don't try and build any hope around this. This baby is not leaving this hospital. So whatever image you have in your mind, whatever, you know, whatever you've, you've imagined your life will be, it won't be. Because I had got to a stage where I said, that's fine. I'm not the first person to have a disabled child. I will look after her. It didn't, it didn't matter. It didn't matter, you know, if she was going to be bed bound or wheelchair bound, uh, tube fed, uh, living off an oxygen machine. It did not matter to me. I knew I had the strength in me to look after this child. And although they told me not to think about the future, I, in my mind, had already set up a hospital bed in my living room, you know, in front of the living room window. I had hired nurses to help me during the nights. I planned everything. I'm a planner. I'm a project manager. This is what comes to me naturally. You know, I'd renovated my house to suit her. I had ramps put in. I, had, I did the works. Um, but, you know, what you dream life will be isn't, isn't exactly what it's going to be. And they, they crushed me by telling me that even if, if we put the right measures in place, there was no way that we could transport her out of that hospital because the, the weight of her upper body would crush the lower half of her body, meaning that she would die on the way out of the hospital. That's how ill my baby was. So anyway, as time went on, um, I guess this is 
where my major trauma starts. My trauma wasn't the fact that I gave birth to a disabled child um, or a child that was going to die. My trauma was the experience that I had in the hospital. Um, I had a lot of pressure on me and I think it was very unnecessary and it was very, it was very, it was heartbreaking. It's not something that you need to deal with when you're, you know, trying to spend whatever time you've got with your child in a, in a hospital setting. We started getting called, called into meetings saying, you need to pull the plug. There's, you know, your child's got no future. She's not going to live anyway. You need to pull the plug. And, I mean, we were like, no, this is a life that God has given us. How dare you? They were expecting us to, 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 kill our, to kill our own child and it wasn't an option. And then this just became, I guess, a daily routine where the doctors would call their seniors and then they would call their lawyers and then they would send us, you know, seven-page documents outlining why it is causing her more harm than good by us not agreeing for them, you know, for them to be pulling the plug on, on, on her. Then they started threatening us with court orders. They told us that it was getting, you know, to a point where she was outgrowing the incubator. She's outgrowing the equipment in NICU because they're only meant to stay there for the first month of their life. And obviously, you know, this, this took a toll on my husband and I. Um, we had a difference of opinion. Um, I put my foot down and I said, there's absolutely no way that I can do this. I would not be able to live with myself if I had to do this, make this decision. You want to make this decision? Go for it. You can, but, you know, I don't want to know about it. Do it outside of me. Do it without my knowledge. Just don't have me involved. So the, the, the hospital staff uh, realised that this was more of a spiritual thing for me. You know, logically what they were saying I agreed with, but to me um, Allah was the only one that gave life and was the only one that could take life. And I kept saying that when it is her time, she will go. I understand that she's going to die, but it won't be me. After a long struggle, Aaliyah came to the end of her journey. We woke up one morning it was about six in the morning and they they called us and they said, look, her saturation levels are really low. Um, and we had already agreed, pre-agreed that had her saturation levels dropped for, for more than four hours, um, then, and we knew that that was the end, it was end of life, basically, a final moment, then in that case we would pull the plug and that moment came. Uh, we went into hospital, the lights were dimmed, the room was emptied, uh, they had some paper covering the little glass on the, the little glass window on the door. Um, we walked in and they had everything ready for us. They knew that it was it was the end. And, you know, they took little handprints and footprints and we finally got to hold her. Um, because up until that stage we she was too fragile to hold. I'd held her once on a pillow. My husband held her once on a pillow. I had one moment where I did um, like a quick snuggle. I think it was Mother's Day from memory. Um, 
but that was our first and last official proper cuddle and we got a good couple of hours with her we probably got about four hours and in the end I don't know what came over me the doctor walked in and he said are we ready are we ready to let her go and in that moment I don't know what I was thinking I don't know why I said it but I said yeah I'm ready and I wasn't it was it wasn't me that was talking it was the influence and it was it was the expectation of you know that this is something that I had to do everybody was looking at me like this is something that you need to do you need to let go so at that moment I I blocked out any you know forethought that I had and I said yeah I'm ready so they pulled the plug on her and, you know, she gave a couple of little breaths in my arms and then she turned blue and that was it. That was the, that was the end of Aaliyah. That was her story. You know, the moment I did it, the moment I said yes and I saw him pull, pull that tube out of her mouth or it was in her nose actually, the moment they did that, I was kicking myself because I thought maybe she had maybe she had another hour. Maybe she had another three hours. Maybe she even if it was another ten minutes. Why couldn't they let me have that ten minutes with her? She was dying anyway. You know, another ten minutes or another hour wouldn't have killed them. <laughs> but the trauma that that left with me and the guilt and having to, you know. Do something that I fought for for 32 days. I put my foot down and I, I fought against everyone. My family, you know, my husband. And to then to finally give in like that. Abra, you did the best thing that you could have done for Aliyah. Right, you fought for her so hard. She was very lucky to have you do that for her. I think we're all lost for words because it was quite an experience and something that even four years on you're still, you know, grappling with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely are. And um, that's probably the reason why you were motivated to contact Naveen, wasn't it? It was because I knew the pain that the emptiness that you feel afterwards knowing that you've got nobody to turn to and unless that person's been through a similar experience, nobody could really understand you. And none of us have the same experience. I mean, we've all got very different stories and we all live our grief in, you know, very different ways. Um, but as much as I knew that Naveen may have needed me in her life, it was me being selfish, really. It was only for myself. I needed that companionship. I needed that person that I could go to and say, I'm having a really crappy day today. And I miss her so much and know that she understands me. Because when you say it four years on to somebody else, it's almost like, it's been four years, just move on already. <laughs> you get that hmm from somebody yeah. once you say that a few years yeah. on. Yep, yep. But Naveen, you weren't immediately happy to accept Ebru's connection, were you? No. So 
it coincides in a way as well. I think the timing of my experience coincided with Ebru's one year anniversary of Aliyah. So my husband and I, you know, we, we tried for a few years and didn't fall pregnant. Um, my first pregnancy was an ectopic pregnancy. I had never heard of the terminology in my life. We went in for our dating scan and they said, you're possibly here too early. Come back in next week and we'll do another scan then. And um, when we went in, they said, you need to go to hospital because it's an ectopic pregnancy. And so I didn't have any of the pains or anything with my ectopic. Uh, it didn't rupture. So we went into the hospital and they said, you're too, your HCG levels are too high and we're going to, we're going to have to do a surgery. And I remember turning to my husband and saying, they're going to cut my baby out of me. This is not, this is not real. And I remember the trauma around that experience was for me at that time, the heaviest thing that I had ever experienced, you know? Um, and the following year I had a miscarriage and I was so frustrated with not being able to fall pregnant that we saw um, an IVF specialist and she had these check boxes that she needed to take off. And she said, your BMI needs to be here. You know, mine was not here. Mine was like here. So she said to me, go away, take a few weeks and, you know, try to lose weight. And I was so committed to this. I lost like 12 kilos with eating healthy. Like you name the health food section item and I would have eaten it, you know, everything that had high folic acid. And you can ask, I am not that person anymore. You know, there is no way you can convince me to eat kale chips anymore. It's never going to happen. <laughs> Um, and we did. And so we thought, let's go away before we start IVF. And so I spent three weeks with my sister in Houston and her baby. And then we went overseas to Pakistan for a couple of weeks. And it was just, it was a crazy trip. I'd been traveling for six weeks and then suddenly realized, wait a second, what's going on? Anyway, so I, I did a pregnancy test in Pakistan. And because of my history, we were really hyper aware of the chance of another ectopic. Um, and I remember we were flying from Dubai to Sydney, which is 14 hours. And it was a really bad flight. We landed in Sydney at around 7. At 8.30, I was at my GP and I was just like, I need to do a scan. So we did a dating scan, I think, uh, like at 12 p.m. that day. And there I was like, I remember throughout, I was just like, is it in the right place? Is it in the right place? And they were like, yep, everything's fine. You know, we can see everything's in the right place. I was so paranoid. I think I had my HCG levels tested like every three days. Wow. <laughs> and if they didn't exactly double, I was just, it was paranoia supreme. And it was when we hit the 12 week mark with the pregnancy, where I sort of, it was literally like I hadn't, taken a breath up until then and that's when I started to breathe and it was breezy I didn't have nausea I had great energy levels um, I wasn't exhausted it was just textbook pregnancy you know ticking all the boxes all the milestones all the baby bump photos with all the stupid little fruits and stuff and <laughs> everything was just you know 
And there's a part of me that is so grateful for how blissfully unaware I was of what can happen because I have these super happy bubble memories of my pregnancy. We're going to leave Naveen's story here for now. Join us in the next episode for the rest of this beautiful story of friendship and to find out how Ibru and Naveen reached out to bereaved mothers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stillness Podcast. Some of the topics raised in this show can be difficult. If it has left you with any questions, please message me on Instagram at thestillnest.au. Please subscribe, share, rate and review this podcast. It means so much to be able to share these stories. This podcast is produced, edited and recorded by Corey Green of Transducer Audio. And now I'll leave you with a little prayer. Inna lillah wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. Allahumma ajurni fi musibati wa li khayran minha. We belong to Allah and to him we shall return. O oh Allah, recompense me for my affliction and give me something better. Take care.